Right, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you to um, this um, um, London School of Economics sixth Space for Thought, that was hard to say, literary festival for this afternoon's event. Um, let me introduce myself first. Uh, my name is Jennifer Richards. I'm a professor of English literature at Newcastle University, and I have a long-standing um, love of anything alphabetical. Now, I'm the chair for this session, and um, before I introduce our guest of honour, uh, Michael Rosen, I have some um, LSE housekeeping uh, for this event. Um, First, to let you know what's going to happen, um, Michael is going to um, talk about, read from alphabetical. Um, I was told for about 40 minutes, but it'll probably be shorter than that. Um, And then we'll have a question session, and I'll introduce that, the the question session, uh, when Michael stopped talking. Um, (laughs) The event is being recorded, um, and the podcast, we hope, may be available, I've been told not to say definitely, may be available um, after the event. And I should also let you know, for those of you who who are Twitter users, uh, the hashtag for today's event, I think it's up on here, is hash LSE event. And there's one last thing I'd like to say before I really do introduce um, the person of the moment, uh, Michael. Could I ask you to double check that your phone is switched to silent? I always have a horrible feeling that mine's going to go off halfway through, but I have checked. Okay, so now for our speaker, let me introduce uh, Michael Rosen. Now, I knew I was going to have a lot of fun preparing uh, for today when I read the full list of the titles of Michael's many books going back over 40 years and realised I would have the opportunity to read a very few of them out to you. I think you get the prize for the best titles. So in no particular order. Quick, let's get out of here. Mm. No. (laughs) No breathing in class. My favourite, one of my favourites, Bob the Bursting Bear. This is not my nose. You're thinking about donuts. Or my absolute favourite... Centrally heated knickers. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that in public. <laughs> so who could not warm to a poet, a man, who writes poetry that begins with lines like this? I love chocolate cake. And when I was a boy, I loved it even more. <laughs> or a writer whose voice in prose and poetry is so simple, so direct, so honest that it appeals to every age. Now, Michael, is not all about um, chocolate cake and centrally heated knickers, of course. <laughs> no, no, I was just agreeing. It's all right. <laughs> there is his blog and journalism, in which he shares his well-informed, sometimes tongue-in-cheek views on a whole range of issues. He may be advising the Secretary for Education or he may be talking about um, arts education as a democratic practice. And there is also the book that we're going to hear about today, Alphabetical, How Every Letter Tells a Story. Now, I'm an early modernist, and um, I've worked for a long time on spelling reformers, 
the wonderful and weird spelling reformers of the 16th century. My spelling reformers get hot and bothered about letters. Whether 26 or 24, is the letter H a letter or a breath of air? Should there be new letters, like something for sh, the sound sh? And they worried about these letters because they wanted everybody to have access to the alphabet. They wanted people to be able to learn to read quickly. Now, Michael is not a spelling reformer. He's not on a mission to correct the alphabet. And our world, unlike theirs, is literate. But he is like them in one respect. He understands that our letters, that the letters are ours. And um, he's telling us their biography, but also making it personal, connecting it to our stories as well. And most importantly, he recognises that the alphabet is not fixed. It has a history. And finally, before I do hand over, a very few facts about Michael, most of which I think you already know, but it would be remiss not to mention his achievements. He presents word of mouth for Radio 4. He was the first children's laureate in 1999. Fifth. 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 Oh, sorry. The fifth. <laughs> the fifth. Thank you. He was made a CBE in 2000. No, I wasn't. No. No. Were you not? Oh, no. Heaven forbid. ask you. I, I won't tell you whether they asked me or not, but I'm definitely not. I don't think I'm allowed to say whether they asked me, but I'm definitely not, put it that way. No, I'm a Republican, so it's impossible for me to... I yeah, It's impossible for me to accept. I'm not saying they, they offered, but I definitely didn't accept. And last of all, he's Professor of Children's Literature at Goldsmiths. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming Michael Rosen... Nice to see you. Thank you ever so much for coming out. Um, so how does somebody get interested in the alphabet? Well, obviously, you are. You're here today, which is nice. Out of interest, how many of you here speak a language other than English? Oh, wow. That's wonderful, isn't it? Do you? Yes, what do you speak? Italian. Italian. Let's gather up some of the other languages in the room, just um, on this side. Name some languages you can speak. German. German. French. French. Greek, Russian, Russian Spanish, Spanish, Japanese, English. Yeah, English is good. No, no, that's fine. If, you sp- if your first language is something else, then English, yes, that's right. It's quite surprising you speak English. Yes, indeed. Yeah, any others? Hindi. Sorry? Hindi. Hindi. Urdu. Urdu. Portuguese. Portuguese. Persian. Persian. Is there another name for Persian? Farsi, yes. Turkish? Chinese. Chinese, which Chinese? Oh, Mandarin. Oh, Mandarin, yeah. American? Oh, American. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I thought I heard Mandarin, but you said American, that's fine. Yeah, no, no, that's excellent. Oh, right, well, we have a room full of language experts, yes? You are experts if you are bilingual or trilingual or quadrilingual, as some people are, or even if you just speak and do it to other languages. I speak quite a lot of French, a little bit of German, a little bit of Yiddish. And that's about it, though I did study uh, English at a time when that was interpreted as starting in about 700 AD. That's because I went to a university called Oxford, and their interpretation of the word English was that that's when it began. It 
begins with Cadmon's hymn, I believe, or his translation of a bit of the Bible, and then ran through to 1900. (laughs) Yeah, it stopped at 1900 in case any of us knew anything about it before we got to the university. See, that was the the method. So um, you weren't supposed to do any literature uh, that happened after 1900, or any language indeed, or indeed any linguistics. Uh, The linguistics that you did at Oxford at that time was what was called philology, which is fascinating, but it is only one branch of linguistics. Philology and etymology, these are the histories of words. Uh, It's a slightly problematic subject, just as uh, Jennifer and I were talking about before, that though we always talk about change in language, it's always very difficult to say why. So when we say there is, there is something that uh, linguists in, of, Eng- of English and Germanic languages are very interested in, which they call the Great Vowel Shift. If you go to university, you'll find people call it the Great Vowel Shift, but that's another matter. <laughs> that's just silly. But anyway, um, just changing letters, really, isn't it? Anyway, but when you say to linguists of all kinds, and it's a very unfair and beastly question, well, why did the vowel sounds change? Why did people stop saying A and start saying Uh, I instead of A and the various other of these vowel shifts, people just say, well, I don't know. So, of course, that is one of the interesting things about language is that it's constantly changing, but people very rarely know why. So just occasionally people do, but that's that's a, a generality. So how did I get into it? Well, let me just tell you a little bit about my home. My parents... Uh, were um, their origins were in Poland and Romania as Polish and Romanian Jews, which meant that their grandparents or parents or yes, when they came to this country, uh, they carried with them several languages. They came in speaking a combination of either Polish or German or Yiddish, which was their mamaloshen, which in Yiddish means their mother tongue. So that was what they came. Now, by the time I came along. Um, The Yiddish had died a bit on the branch, but it was present. It was present mostly in my father's swearing. Um, So if you just conjure up a little scene at home, my father might mutter under his breath something like, uh, and my mother would say, don't say that, Harold. And we would say, what did he say? What did he say? And then she'd say, don't tell them. Which I suppose is one way to get very curious in language. That there could be something so potent that your father said it under his breath, your mother told him not to say it, and when you asked what it meant, uh, you weren't allowed to know. I was still asking my father to the day he died what they meant, and very grudgingly, around about the age of 88, he started telling me. And I can't share them with you because they're too disgusting. So anyway, (laughs) there you go. Um, I'm not going to blame Yiddish for that, maybe just my father. But anyway, um, and they, they were the pair of them were both very interested in language and there were all kinds of mysteries. I mean, for example, uh, we went to Germany. When I, in 1957, we went to Germany. Because they were communists, of course, the part of Germany we went to was East Germany or the German Democratic Republic, so-called. It was German, it was a republic, but it certainly wasn't democratic. Um, not that that bothered anyone there at the time. I mean, the leadership, everybody else was bothered. Um, and, um, yeah, we went there, and I remember arriving. So I'm 11 at the time, and we sat down at a table to eat something, and people were talking in German, obviously, and my mother just looked up and said, I understand everything they say. And I said, why? And she said, well, because... And she never told me before... She said, because um, I spoke Yiddish, didn't I, for the first five years of my life. So why my mother never shared this with me until I was 11, I never knew. So there were these kind of moments of mystery about language, the idea that there are kind of chambers of language beyond 
the moment you can see. I guess some of you here in the room, this will strike some chords that you know that your parents have got this other place to go to. Or perhaps it's you that you have this other place and you may not have necessarily shared it with your children. Anyway, so because of this, and my parents did go into various forms of interest in language, my mother became a primary school teacher, my dad a secondary school teacher, and they even wrote a book called The Language of Primary School Children, which, as the title suggests, was a little bit to do with language. Um, and they were very interested in language and talked about it. Meanwhile, my dad, he became a prof at the Institute of Education, where he became very interested in linguistics in relation to children and school students uh, in primary and secondary schools. So there was a lot of that going on, and then I somehow or other ended up, via doing medicine, don't ask me why, um, uh, doing English myself at university. So then I've spent the last uh, 40 years or so going into schools and working with children, and if you work with children, then you are at a very interesting moment in the evolution of language, not the evolution of language quite the way... Jennifer is looking at it, but the evolution of language of the people in front of you, because mm-hmm. their language is evolving very quickly. And all sorts of ways uh, it, it impinges on you, but more directly in relation to the alphabet, um, it might be, say, I'm asked to do a signing. And when I'm asked to do a signing, I'm sitting down in front of someone and people tell me their names. And I might not be able to spell it, or I might think I might be able to spell it, but I might be wrong. So somebody say, I say, hello, what's your name? And they say, Shireline. And then I don't know where to start. Because I don't know whether it's a C or an S. And I don't know, though it said, sounded a bit like Shireline, I don't know whether after we've decided whether it's an S or a C and we've got to the H, I don't know whether it's going to be an E and an I. And I don't know whether it's going to be one R or two R's. I've no idea what the next letter's going to be. I've probably got a good idea that the following letter will be an L, and then after that, I don't know, it could be a variety of things. It could be two E's and an N. It could be an E and an N and an E. (laughs) And it could be a whole variety there. And I'm very interested in that, because what's going on there is in the popular culture, if you like, people are taking it upon themselves to spell names or even to invent names for themselves. I'm not saying Shirley's necessarily invented, but, but people do, and then they decide for themselves how they'll spell it. So I'm thinking, oh, that's quite interesting. Meanwhile, some children are coming in front of me and saying S-H-I-R-R, like that, and others are going S, H, I, R. And I'm thinking, well, that's quite funny, because I meet the people who teach reading through a system that's known as uh, systematic synthetic phonics, Note the double S before the F there, S, S, F. Anyway, I was just making that clear, it's all right. No no significance whatsoever. So, uh, systematic synthetic phonics, and they point out that we never, 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 never teach the children, we always make absolutely clear that the children must never say S, because after all, that's not the way. If you say bat, you don't say B, at, or even B, at. We go, mm. Yeah, is that clear? You just looked at me like kind of I was saying something either sensible or... Anyway, yeah, I wasn't. But anyway, they point out, you see, to the children that that little sound that all the children do whenever I ask them to spell their names, known as a schwa, um, that little uh sound that is um, the kind of predominant English sound now, that's mostly what we, the way we talk to each other now is with uh. You see, so the schwa or schwa, um, that, that schwa uh, that the children put after the letter is being banned, but they all do it. 
And that intrigues me. Why are they doing it if they've been told not to? But then that's children for you, isn't it? But anyway, <laughs> so they spell out their name. And then I, the next child steps up and he says his name is Tariq. And I say, well, can you spell your name for me, Tariq? And he says T-A-R-I-Q. And, of course, anybody in England who's been brought up to spell knows that all words with Q must be followed by a U, <laughs> except when your name's Tariq. <laughs> and this intrigues me as well. Who, who decided um, in the Islamic tradition that we won't bother with U's when we write in English? And this is absolutely fine. People have taken it upon themselves. And so I'm sitting there musing about that and thinking, well... How did people give themselves permission to do that? And then I think about my own name, and I think, well, that's a bit bizarre, my name. We have this A-E in my Michael that um, most people ignore. They find it, certainly children, they just think it's a waste of time to have <laughs> A-E, and so they always write my name, M-I-C-H-E-A-L. And I don't argue with them, I just think that's fair enough if they want to spell it that way, that's, that's all right by me. And then I look at the second part, that last part of my name, Rosen, and, um, and that's a little bit curious because quite often people pronounce it all sorts of interesting other ways like Rosen and Rosen and, and, and so on. And I say, if I have to spell it, and not being, well if I'm being facetious, I'll say it's R-O-S-E-N with a silent Q as in rhubarb. But um, <laughs> if I'm being unfacetious, I'll say it's uh, rose, like the flower, with an N on the end. And then when I look at that N, and because I did a bit of German, um, then I remember that um, the interesting thing is that in German, most, or a lot of the plurals, um, are, that, are that way of adding an N rather than the S. So there's a sort of little bit of something to do with the community of Germanic languages that we're in. And of course we have a little residue of that. If you can all tell me what the plural of ox is, you'll say... Yeah, we don't tend to say oxes. If you want to say oxes, I won't shout at you. Um, you can find a language policeman somewhere who might do that for you, but not me. But yes, we tend to say oxen. So there, is, there are one or two little residues of that. Um, there are other ways of doing plurals in English, as you may know. If we say foot, and we say the plural of foot, we'll say feet, if you want to say foots. Um, yes, and tooth, and, and goose, and so we've got uh, an interesting vowel change to do plurals there, which is again part of the Germanic family. And then if you go to Northern Ireland up until quite recently and you said, what was the plural of child, they'd have told you, childer. Yes, it, 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 my wife, ex-wife's, uh, uh, ex-wife's mother used to say childer, um, and then that somehow or other migrated into that German plural, children. So I'm sitting there thinking all that about Rose, and then I'm thinking, well... Where did the Rosen come from? It's quite a common German name. It's nice. It just means roses. Uh, but because I'm Jewish in origin, um, the story's not quite so nice um, in the sense that round about the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the Jews in the, in the area that um, we now call Germany were offered citizenship. And this was a breakthrough in Europe. Uh, it was happening all over Europe, Napoleon and so on, offering equal rights to uh, minorities, including Jews. Um, and it was quite a step forward because they had to sort of throw off the Christian residue of discrimination against Jews and offer them citizenship. But there was a, uh, a sort of penalty to pay. Uh, Jews were mostly known by their Hebrew names uh, that they were given um, or taken at the synagogue. Uh, but in order to get this full citizenship, um, they had to have a Christian name, literally a Christian name. That's a first name that was a Christian name. And then one of the surnames around 
And uh, so the name Rosen existed. It existed there in Germany, Rosen and Rosenberg and Rosenblatt and all the other Rosens. And so some people, but, yeah, but they cost you. They did cost a little bit. If you wanted a nice name, you had to buy it. You see, you had to buy it. Whether that was a sort of joke about stereotypes of Jews with money, I don't know. Ha, 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 you've got to pay for it. Um, who knows, but they had to. But if you didn't have the mazuma, as you would say in Yiddish, um, that's the money. Uh, if you didn't have the money to buy a name, then um, these nice guys who were handing out the names, the Bayamtas there, um, they, you, they got an insulting name. Um, so you got a name like Ochsenschwanz. Uh, Schwanz, uh, as I'm sure the German speakers here will know, is, actually means tail, but if you can think of anything else that is of that kind of shape. <laughs> no, it's not beyond us, that's good. Well, then it's a kind of ox willy type sort of gag. So uh, that particular Jew walked around with the name ox willy. Um, and I, not long ago, I was in a school and I asked a girl her name and she said, Kalfpish. Um, and you can put that together. Kalfam is um, basically trading, buying, selling, and pish is, of course, piss. So somehow or other, for at least a, a, over 150 years, she'd carried the name Sell Piss. Um, and so uh, I find myself thinking about this even as I'm writing my name. You know, I guess it's all telescoped into one. But I'm finding myself thinking about all this through the letters. These letters are significant. And I, I once got a book on, the, on Jewish names. And uh, I was immediately turned to Rosen, as you do, in that kind of egocentric way of pretending to be scholarship um, <laughs> that you're all familiar with. Um, and, I, and I got there, and it said, oh, it's quite interesting. It said that sometimes um, in names you can have a patronymic. So anybody in the room who's called Johnson or Davidson, um, and some of you from other cultures will have a form, a way of uh, saying son of, possibly, in your name, even if you're a daughter, which is always quite curious, but anyway, uh, it's one way of language is sexist as well. Um, and on the other hand, sometimes uh, you can have a matronymic as well, that's to say your mother is somehow commemorated in your name. In Hebrew, uh, to commemorate your father, you would say Ben, so you might say that your name is Mordecai Ben Yitchak, so you would say son of uh, Yitchak. Yes, uh, but if you say Bar, then you're saying uh, the daughter of, or something like that, but you could say Ben of the mother. And what this book suggested was that if someone was called Rosen or Rosenblatt, what they were trying to do was hang on to a bit of cultural memory. So what they did was they were saying that their mother's name was probably Rosa, and they were saying Ben Rosa, but in order to carry a little bit of cultural memory, you might even call it cultural resistance if you're a bit optimistic like I am, um, and so they held that in the name that they adopted. So they adopted the name Rosen from local German populations and then somehow or other carried a memory. So I'm thinking that this is in some way or another all carried in letters. So this, if you like, was a stimulus for me thinking through all these various strands to do with letters um, and I started getting intrigued by it and looking thinking, well, actually... Rather, something rather strange about letters is that once you've learned to read, by and large, letters are kind of invisible. We, I mean, we all, all, the, all you people in the room who are readers, you, you know your letters, you can all recite the alphabet in, in at least, as I now know, at least one language, probably two or three, and you can recite this alphabet, but when it actually comes to reading, the more you're engaged in the reading, the less you're interested in the alphabet. So it, there's a sort of strange transparency about it. There are various times when the alphabet is not transparent. 
mostly, I suppose you'd say, in graphic design. So, you know, you might find yourself sitting in the tube and looking at adverts. Um, have you ever noticed, by the way, that if you're sitting on a London bus, there's a little red thing, and on it it says stop. And then you press it. But have you noticed, normally when it used to read a sign that says stop, <laughs> you stop, don't you? But this sign means you don't stop. You do something, you start actually, because you go like that. And then nothing stops, because the bus is still going on. Otherwise, you wouldn't press it. If it had stopped, you wouldn't press it. So, in fact, it doesn't mean stop, unless it's a command to the bus driver. But, but you don't say, stop! That was it. Anyway, just a little observation. But, you know, you know when you look at newspapers and, and, and if you like, the whole general area of commercial layout, or if you are yourself a graphic designer... Or if, like me, you've spent um, many years trying to produce leaflets and things like that, then you do get engaged with the physicality of the letters. But for a lot of the time, the more we enjoy a book, the less we're interested in the letters. The more you're intrigued by the article or the tweet or the Facebook entry or whatever it is you're doing, maybe when you're handwriting you might get a bit engaged. Maybe when you get your fingers a bit caught up with the keys, the letter keys, but by and large... It's a kind of obstacle to overcome in order to get at the stuff beyond it. So in itself, that's, that's quite intriguing, I always think. But then, if you only have to spend a little bit of time, and that's what I did do, in, in looking at where the letters themselves came from, and then you find that really every letter, and this is not the sound of the letter, this is just the look of the letter, has an archaeology. So just as we saw Tony Robinson... Um, uh, rushing about in time team and finding stuff below the surface, which I mean, I absolutely loved, by the way, I'm not taking the mickey or anything, absolutely loved that, that in a way, behind every letter, there is an archaeology. Now, calligraphers and people at the British Museum and all sorts of other places, and people like Jennifer, indeed, have known this for years, but um, it's not a, a story that's very well known. So part of the book was, in fact, to tell that story as well as I could. Um, so, you know, where did these signs first come from? Because they are signs, and it does seem as if they came from about 2,500, 2,300 years ago. People started putting down some signs that do resemble some of the signs that uh, we use today. Not all of the signs we use today, but, but um, a good deal of them. They're, they're related to them, and usually they describe the people who came up with these as Semitic peoples. Um, the first time it gets sort of fully codified into something resembling an alphabet in a sequence seems to be the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians are mysterious people because um, people can't really read Phoenician. Um, they just keep coming across references to them as people that need to be killed, uh, by the Romans, of course, um, uh, particularly in Carthage. So, um, and obviously, if you're a Roman, the most important thing to burn is their library. Um, so they did that. But it does seem rather as if the kind of laying down of something resembling our alphabet comes from uh, the Phoenicians. But when I say an alphabet, it involves a huge leap in intellectual thinking. We think of the wheel as this incredible moment in civilization that enabled so much to take place. But just think what you've got to do in order to come up with a sign that signifies a sound. Somewhere or another, you've got to 
break down the stuff that you're saying, and there's no indication that people who were pre-literate were in any way deficient in speaking, quite the opposite. That they were doing an enormous amount of speaking in order to hunt and to gather and to socialise and to trade and do lots of other things. But how do you make the jump from going, hello everybody, this is nice to meet you, to coming up with some signs for bits of the stuff that you're saying? Now nobody knows for certain how they did it, but one route that people do think is involved, think of another of the roots of language, uh, of the written language, are hieroglyphs. And I guess most of us are familiar with hieroglyphs, and if you're not, do nip along to the British Museum straight away, um, for one reason or another, not all of them honourable. Um, the British Museum has a lot of hieroglyphs in there, um, and you can get a little guide to what they are. Now most of the hieroglyphs uh, are a form of pictogram. Those of you who can speak and read Chinese, pictograms are very familiar to you. It's the idea that a sign is a whole word or concept. Now, to start off with, we might think that we don't, we Brits here, we don't do it. But I'll come back to that because we do. But anyway, but by and large, we're working on this alphabet. So it looks as if what the ancient Egyptians did was, yes, they did start with hieroglyphs. And then somewhere around about the same time as these Semitic people, so-called, in the Middle East, around the Lebanon, that sort of area, about the same time, the ancient Egyptians were taking some of their hieroglyphs and saying, well, what if you took the initial sound and the hieroglyph only meant the initial sound? If that all seems terribly abstract, let's start with an apple. Okay? So you draw an apple. Hey, I've got a... Yes. Um, I can't draw... But there you go, that's either an apple or a tomato or somebody's bum or a variety of things. But let's say it's an apple. And then when I see that sign, I go, apple. And I'm very pleased about that. And then, so I can then write apple and I can say the apple is on the table. I'm going to do the table a little bit, just over there. there look, the apple is, oh, it's next to the table there. So I'll put it on the table. I say, Anyway, a variety of ways I can communicate on paper or on wax tablets or on clay tablets or something like that, and I can say apple. But what if I make a leap and say that that sign shall just mean app? Just app. So every time I do the apple, it doesn't say apple. It actually can migrate around in the language I speak and can make an app sound. Now, that breakthrough, you could think of another word like bed, and you draw a bed, and instead of meaning bed or only bed, it can also mean b. Well, that, when people cracked that code, and this is the sort of thing that went on in the British Museum, in the French uh, Museum in, in Paris, and also probably in some of the Islamic scholarship of the 11th century, people figured out that this is what the ancient Egyptians had done. And it is a breakthrough, it is akin to the invention of the wheel, because once you can start breaking down sounds and giving these signs to the sounds, you have an alphabet. There are other ways of doing it. Those of you who speak and write Arabic will know that you work to syllables. You have a slightly different system, um, and so you have a syllabary system of writing so that each one of the signs means a syllable. Chinese, we've already mentioned. There are plenty of ways of doing it. Um, it does seem as if one of the other ancient languages was a syllabic system. That's Sumerian. If you go pop across to the British Museum again, you'll see loads and loads of uh, Sumerian tablets. In fact, the guy who first uh, transcribed uh, one set of the tablets that seemed to be a story analogous to the Great Flood that is in the Bible, 
under the heading of Noah. He got so excited about it, he took his clothes off and ran round the British Museum for a while. It, it, you know, linguistic scholarship does occasionally get that exciting. <laughs> uh, Jennifer's done it many... No, sorry. <laughs> Don't go there. Um, so, um, so, this breakthrough. Now, so if... When you look at these letters, the, the Phoenician letters, and, and there, I've put it in the book, Phoenician Alphabet, you'll look at some of them, and they do look a bit similar. Mm. But you can also see behind some of them the pictogram that they started out from. So let us... He turned over a sheet of paper. I like doing this, you know. It reminds me of primary school. It was all chalk and talk, you know. So look, let's do a capital A, a little bit roughly like that. Okay, so look, there's a sort of capital A in English, yeah? Or, of course, it might be called an uppercase. And you know why they're called uppercase and lowercase? It was because of the early printers. They used to put the big letters... On the, in the upper case of letters, and they put the little letters in the lower case of letters, yeah? So they went like that, went, oh, no, that one's upper case, and put it there. So that's an uppercase letter, or big, as I prefer to call it, yeah. <laughs> and now let's just rotate that A, so it's like that. That's beginning to look like something, no, uh, we'll do that again. <laughs> let's make it a bit more pointed, like that, yes. That was a bit suggestive, wasn't it? Sorry about that. Michael Rosen came to LSE and drew obscene drawings for us, and that was very exciting. So, look, um, and if we said that was possibly an animal, and that possibly these were horns, and that was therefore possibly an ox, or one of the uh, creatures we call cattle, and that this was its head and this was its horns, well, that is, in fact, the first letter in the Phoenician alphabet, um, which is written out in English as A-Y-I-N, A-I-N, I-N, and it seems to have made a sound that was more like a sort of uh, breath or a breathing out, a kind of uh sound. By the time the Greeks got hold of it, they had begun to rotate it, and if you, of course you can see, there's Greek people here, they'll know that the letter A is there like that, and it did make an ah uh sound when you saw it. I say it didn't do anything at all. That's what's called rarefication, but never mind. Um, that's that there, uh, A. And you can go through the alphabet, our alphabet, and behind some of the letters you can find this ancient pictogram system. And it's lovely. It's like a, to, for me it's exciting because it's like a, like, like a secret code. So the story goes of how did these letters come to us? How did, what was the root? And it does seem to have gone from the Phoenicians, possibly from these Semitic peoples before, but the Phoenicians to the ancient Greeks who did some changes of one sort or another, and then the Etruscans, the people living on the Italian uh, peninsula uh, before Roman culture, they seem to have got hold of it, then the Romans got hold of it and did some more adaptations, and the most sophisticated form of those you can see on uh, some of the uh, ancient Roman inscriptions uh, in Rome, for example. And so we then have the Roman uh, alphabet, and then we inherit it. And what have I missed out? I've missed out something very important. The Anglo-Saxons. Yes, we're back to my first year at Oxford University. Yes, them, the Anglo-Saxons. In fact, of course, that's one of those kind of things we all walk around going, yes, the Anglo-Saxons, you know, and then French people say, the trouble with the banking system is it's Anglo-Saxon. Is it? Yeah. I always sort of get an impression, when, when, when French people talk about the Anglo-Saxons, uh, meaning us, I always get a sort of strange picture of, you know, Alfred burning the cakes, or guys with sort of horns going, Thor and Woden, hooray. Anyway, I, anyway uh, 
they, there were some Angles and Saxons, uh, for those of you who don't know. Um, the Romans got a bit fed up being here. Uh, the story goes that um, the Goths were burning Rome and they all rushed back. Uh, it's probably not true, but anyway, that's what they say, at around about 400. And then the Anglo-Saxons, this is the way the story goes, said, hey, let's go to that place where the Romans left. And then they all arrived in their boats. This is probably not true. Probably the Anglo-Saxons or people who spoke Germanic languages had probably been coming, I'm sorry about saying it's as if it's here, but anyway, yes, uh, were coming to these islands probably for quite a while before, um, probably from even, say, from about the year 100. But anyway, so Angles and Saxons, and who else came? Jutes, we'll have a few Jutes, yeah. They came from Jutland, which you'll know is at the bottom of Denmark. Anybody else, anyone else came at this time? We'll have the Vikings in a moment, yeah. The, we're on the Germanics rather than the Scandinavians for the moment. I'm sure they'd never thought of it in those terms. We're Germanic, they're Scandinavian. Anyway, so, yeah, any others? Did they come? Frisians? Shall we have some Frisians? Anyone here from Frisia? Yes, there we are. There's a lady up there. That's right. Well, you've seen Frisian cows, sometimes called Holsteiners. All right, so the northern part of Holland and the, that bit of Germany there... And in actual fact, the language we're speaking, that I'm speaking now, probably owes most to the Frisians than anyone else. So perhaps, you know, if you were uh, being absolutely correct when I was studying Anglo-Saxon, which, by the way, we called Old English, you'd actual fact be calling it Old Frisian. But that one never caught on. It's funny, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe they didn't want to be identified with cows or something. But anyway, so there we go. So Old Frisian, that seems to have been the main language, certainly, of Southern English when it came in. When those peoples, those Germanic peoples came in, they did not write using the Roman alphabet. That's the bit that I missed out. So when we talk about the fact that English people write with a Roman alphabet, it's actually not quite right. It's okay maybe to say that French, Spanish, Italians, Romanians and so on write with a Roman alphabet, or Germans indeed, but to say that the Brits do, it's kind of, it's, it always, I always find it quite intriguing because... Those folks who arrived, these Germanic peoples arrived, they were writing with something else, which maybe many of you know, they were writing in runes. They were writing in runes. I am not an expert on runes. Here we are, this is how you write runes. A bit like ruins, but not. So there you go. They came in writing in runes, and runes are beautiful. They are mostly with a downward line, with various little lines off it, and triangles and so on. Again, let me send you to the British Museum and have a look at Frank's casket. This has nothing to do with Frank, but to do with the Franks, who were also Germanic peoples, even though it sounds like they were French. They were Germanic peoples um, uh, from memory of, who were living on the Rhine. And the Franks came in and they spoke in... If you look at Frank's casket, it's absolutely stunning, stunning object in the British Museum. You'll see on the side of it a mixture of runic writing and what we're calling Roman writing, the kind of uh, the, the language, the, the letters of Latin, yes? I do have a look at it. And so when we think of the peoples who first came here, they wrote in runes. That's what they wrote in. Those few who were allowed to write or had been given the honour or the privilege of writing. So in fact, the first English, if that's what you're going to call it, alphabets, were runic. I think from the parts of the world where Jennifer comes from, you've got some runic inscriptions hanging about up there. And then for one reason or another, those peoples speaking those Germanic languages and dialects decided to switch. And it is a revolution. It's an extraordinary moment when a whole people decide that their literacy will switch from one way of writing to another. Just imagine if we all suddenly decided 
to switch from the Roman system to Arabic or to Russian or to Chinese, but we carry on speaking the same language. It's very hard to imagine, isn't it, that you would turn the way you speak into letters that you can't read because we connect the two so firmly. And yet that is precisely what the ancient Germanic-speaking, early English speakers did. They switched over. Why did they do it? This is possibly one of those linguistic questions that has an answer. And it's mostly, and you might predict it, connected to the conversion to Christianity. That Christianity was codified in Latin. That it's coming in in a Roman form. The Roman, so the conversion. Christianity, though its origins are in the Middle East, spreads around the world, uh, largely to start off with, at any rate, uh, in, Latin, in Latin writing. So that's probably the main reason why they switched over. So the idea of literacy is connected to religion, which is obviously, in this case, connected to Christianity. There are other religions. There's the one I referred to, Thor and Woden, and all those lovely pagan Norse stuff going on. Um, but it does seem to be that that's why. But did they adopt the Roman alphabet? Yes, they did, but of course they didn't want to fully let go of all their runes, and so they hung on to a few of the runes. Uh, now I'm going to send you to the British Library, okay? Not the British Museum. I'm going to send you off to the British Library to have a look at Beowulf. Beowulf was written down in around the year 1000, and it's quite an intriguing document because Christian monks wrote down what is essentially a pagan story, though there are Christian elements in it, about peoples who come from, well, Sweden and Denmark in modern terms. So what is an English Christian monk sitting there writing down a story about Swedish and Danish warriors, and it's not even really Christian, apart from a few bits stuck in there, and he's writing, this guy is writing this stuff down, or possibly several, several monks in the scriptorium, um, they're writing it down and when they write they write it in the Roman letters but they also write with some of these runes the very first word of Beowulf is what which you have to say quite carefully in case people think you're saying something else so I'll just get you all to say that one, two, three what now you've got to do the huh sound before the w sound okay? we're used to saying what in my case. <laughs> Every now and then I had a very pedantic biolo biology teacher. I was going to say biological teacher, but that's slightly different. <laughs> biology teacher who used to pronounce all her WH words as wh. So she said, who are you? Or she would say, with whom? whom? And so on. So, but she did put the word before the her. But it does seem as if our Frisian forebears tended to say, I'll just check with Jennifer on that, that they said wh. And in fact, I'd... There, is, there are some people in the northeast who still do. That's right. There are some people where Jennifer comes from where they still say what, uh, rather than what or what. Anyway, the very first word in Beowulf is what, and when they wrote it down, they wrote it down with runes. Well, the first letter is an H. The second one is what's called a win. The second letter is, is an ash, and then there's a, a thing a bit like the T. So when the, when the peoples here were first writing, they wrote in a in, if you like, a kind of hybrid alphabet, if that's what you want to call it. It was Roman, but also had runes in it. So our origins, our alphabetical origins, are hybrid. I am always very, very reluctant, whether talking about literature or language in any way at all, 
to use words like English or this is its origins or these are pure because wherever you go, there are mongrels. Everybody is a mongrel, everybody is a migrant. Even if they aren't that minute, they'll become one or their origins are. There is mongrelization and migration throughout the history of language and letters and writing. And no more so in this, if you like, seminal manuscript. There are, please do go and have a look at it. Don't be disappointed, it's very small and it looks like somebody chucked it in the fire and whipped it out again. <laughs> because that is what happened. Yes, in 17, I forget the exact part, which bit of the 18th century, it was sitting in a library called the Cotton Library and there was a fire and they lobbed it out the window and it was flaming as it went through the air and then someone dunked it in a bucket and that is the way, that is the sole manuscript for this incredible epic which is really the first huge piece of literature, there are lots of other pieces of literature, but the first huge piece of literature written in the forebear, forebears of our of the language I'm speaking now, and written down in, on these islands. So Beowulf uh, is there, and it's, it's half burnt. It's rather extraordinary, really, and you can see the little burn marks on it um, and the guesses that people have had to, made, to make in order to get the, the meaning of it. So that's, that's where it is. And, of course, you'll also know that when you look at early alphabets and early writing, some of the letters, we might say, are missing. Well, first of all, they dropped the runes. When I say they, some of you will also know that in 1066, some French people turned up. <laughs> they, they were armed, um, and um, it was basically uh, punch-ups between tribal warlords of northern Europe, but sometimes it's dignified with names like William the Conqueror and so on, but basically it's just various people doing various forms of land grab uh, with dubious claims of uh, the legitimacy. Uh, but anyway, William the Conqueror, or William the Conqueror, of course, is what we called him when I was a kid, or Guillaume le Bâtard, as they call him in French, William the Bastard. Um, not because he was a bastard, but because he was a bastard. Um, or the other way around, I'm not sure which, but anyway. Um, so Guillaume le Bâtard uh, came, and, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. So he came uh, bare, speaking uh, Norman French, and, of course, the language went through a lot of changes as a consequence of that arrival in 1066 because the ruling class in this country became French, whatever that meant at the time, not only Norman but also people from the Ile-de-France, the area around Paris. So they came in, and the people who were writing, first as scribes and then later as printers, they had a different idea about how the language should be written down. So, for example, after they arrived... And people thought, well, one of the words that you'll all know and have always puzzled, particularly those of you who've had to learn English, is why in English we spell the word fight, F-I-G-H-T. This seems nonsensical, it seems stupid, it should be immediately banned. Spelling reformers pull their hair out and say, well, that won't work because obviously G-H would signify G as in ghost, uh, the beginning of ghost. So what is it doing there? Well, at the time, it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense to Norman scribes, at any rate. Uh, the word was probably pronounced ficht or fichte, uh, either with a sound on the end or not, and people had to think, as they often do in languages all over the world, how to make ch. It comes out as various ways. Um, let's all say it, shall we? It's quite good fun. They all say ch. Or <laughs> They're slightly different forms. Just think, oh, if you say the, the Welsh name Hugh, can you say that? 
quite often, what the way people say that, that H at the beginning there, is very different from the way they say the H at the beginning of hat. So you say hat and hue. Yes, there you are. You see, you've closed the back of your throat. You probably haven't given it the full ch, the full welly of loch. Can you do that? Or in the case of my father swearing, chadam in loch, which is a disgusting thing which I won't translate like I told you. Or chadam in loch, in fact. Yeah, so the ch sound was represented by a sort of kind of runic thing, but it wasn't really called a yog. Nothing to do with yogurt. A yog, okay? Um, possibly a yoch, even, though that has uh, problems for Yiddish speakers. Okay, so yog was there, and then the French scribe said, no, that ch sound, let's replace it with gh. And they did. And that's why they did it probably to make children learning English, uh, quite, uh, learning writing, uh, unhappy. That was probably why they did it. Uh, though they couldn't predict that. But obviously, as you know, there's, I don't think there are many people around, possibly in lowland Scotland at any rate, who do pronounce that, that sound in fight. Perhaps there are some people in, from Scotland still saying fecht for, for, for fight, or they do when they're reading Robert Burns' poetry, um, or is doing the ballads, doing Edward, Edward, why does your hand see drip with blood? And that sort of thing. Um, so, that's why we get things like that. So, that there, again, we've got the alphabet migrating and changing. And also we have, if you look at the Roman alphabet and you look at the word for horse, uh, at least the posh word for horse, you'll see that it's written, and some of you can tell me and join in, E-Q-V-V-S, which, of course, we pronounce ICVS. <laughs> but it does seem as if the Romans said something like Equus. So, in other words, the first V signified to them a W sound, and the second V signified for them an U sound. And they said Equus, so W, U. So they, they turned those two, not turned, those two Vs, they signified different sounds. Nothing strange about that. Most of our letters can do double time. Um, and so that was the way it was, Equus. And at some point or another, and it was, uh, I think, just before you come onto the scene, um, people discovered that they could use a U, that would be very useful, and so the U started to do time as an U sound, but it was also doing time as a V sound, just to make so, in Shakespearean times, you'll see the word knave written instead of a V, but with a U. Um, so there were a lot of complications around U and V, and then if you go, let me send you off somewhere else, if you go to the little tower opposite the House of Commons, you'll see that someone has scratched uh, on the wall I-R, um, and that signified uh, James. Like the I in that, so that's James Rex, or the, the Latin of it. Um, so that's the I used to do double time as an Y sound or an I sound, but also as a J sound. It did double time at the beginning of January. So the J, the letter J, had to be invented. And then, mysteriously, the W had to be invented. The French got it right. They call it a double V because it is two Vs. For some mysterious reason, we call it a double U. But that's another matter, when obviously it's a double V. So spelling reformers could do wonders, couldn't they? So though it's a Roman alphabet, stuff got added, stuff got sorted out later. So there we are, we have the alphabet. But I've missed off of one or two things. When children used to recite the alphabet, they went A, B, C, D, F, G, H. This is after the, those letters have been invented, okay, and have been sorted out. 
Um, Johnson, the great dictionary person, wasn't very happy about J. He thought it was an inferior form of I, but never mind. So anyway, so they got to the end to Z, and there was another sign which I can never draw. If anyone wants to come and draw it, they can. It's the and sign. Yes? And when the children got to the end of the alphabet, they'd go X, Y, Z, and, per se, and. Yes? They got to the end, and they said and... Per se in Latin means on its own or for itself. And, per se, and. Now, if you squash and, per se, and up, you'll end up with ampersand. So the name of that... Now, it isn't a letter in the alphabetic sense, is it? It's a whole word. So it's a sign that means a whole word. Now, we do this quite a lot in English, to do signs with whole words... Think of the at sign, this one, which is now, no, which has become, that's just, yeah, anyway, that one, go around the other way, that one, the at sign, so we have the and sign, which its posh name is ampersand, but it's not posh. I love the idea that thousands and thousands of children being beaten to death, nearly, in schools, to do their alphabets, having their knuckles wrapped, like my mum and dad told me their knuckles are wrapped. Um, you can see what, how, what wonders it did for them. Um, and the, getting their knuckles wrapped in order to get through the alphabet and to say and per, se, and per se and at the end, and that it got faster and faster. So it was a form of uh, whatever you might call it, sort of corruption is the way that linguists sometimes use that word to mean that there's an origin and it got changed, but it's a bit shame that it gets called a corruption that it then gets squashed and condensed and turned into something else in the mouths of children, let it be said. And that's why we have this very posh word, the ampersand. I quite enjoy that. <laughs> so, look, that, that used to be a sort of letter of the alphabet in the recitations. But if you think now, I don't know, how many of you here use Twitter? Well, you can't get through Twitter. You can't be Twitterate. You can't be Twitter literate unless probably, or indeed email literate, if you don't use that sign. But I only have to go back in my lifetime, and that meant a thing on accounting. That meant that, you know, 42... Well, that was the price. That was the way you worked something out, that you, had, you ordered 42 of things at a certain price. And that was the little shortcut that accountants used to use. So it did mean at, but it had a very specific use on ledgers and in shops when you bought nails and things like that. Not that I ever bought nails, but no, no, I did sometimes. Anyway, so we have that sign, but then also we have this sign, which is good for playing noughts and crosses, or tic-tac-toe, as Americans say. Also, in one form or another, it was the sharp sign, wasn't it? Not quite like that, but more or less like that. Does it have a name? What would you call it? The... Hashtag, the hashtag, but some people have even got another name for it. They call it the Octothorpe. What do you think it is? Oh, you can't see because I'm standing in front of it. That's fair enough, yeah. We're pointing at this one here. You still can't see. Oh, right, that's fair enough. There you go. There we go, look. I feel a bit like Paul Daniels now. That's right. So that thing, the hashtag. Have you ever used a hashtag? Yeah, exactly. There you go. You, that's right. So the hashtag, which is now part of... Um, if you like, literate communication in Twitter. So again, people won't call it a letter. We say it's the hashtag, but it doesn't quite say hashtag, except when people go, 
hashtag, but just in writing, and it signifies certain things. It can be signified the topic, but also, most notably as we know, it can land you with about an £80,000 fine if you write hashtag innocent eyes. In the case of somebody who libeled somebody, I'm not going to say it here at all, but that's, so you can use it as an ironic aside. So we've invented just in the last ten years or so a new literate item, a sign that has signification, it means something. I might write hashtag irony alert. I don't know how I've got through life without this, and now I find that very useful. In other languages, people call this something else. Other than, we call it the at sign. We're not terribly creative. Do people here like to tell us what you call that? Translate it, well, say it in your language and then translate it for us. German, what do you call that? Do you know what that's called? You don't? Anybody know what that's called? Yes? I don't know. In, in Russian, we call it a dog. A dog? Yeah, or sabaka. Sabaka. There we go. That's a dog. <laughs> Good. Lovely. Anybody else? Yes? That's an elephant's trunk. So it's a dog, it's an elephant's trunk. Have we got anybody else? A snail. Good. So we've got a dog, an elephant's trunk, and a snail. Yes. Which means? Yeah. It's just a sort of noise you make when you look at it. <laughs> Very good. Lovely. Anybody else? Yeah. In, in, yes? It's a snail. How do you say that in Italian? Can you say that very loudly for everybody so they can say it? Chiocciola. Have I said that right? Chiocciola. Go on, everybody say that. Chiocciola. So next time you order a pizza, <laughs> you say, con... Chiocciola. Is that right? No. No, no, you don't. It's just my Italian is very limited to about con funghi, which I found incredibly useful. You, you, you go to Italy, you're in the street, you go up to a policeman, you want to know the way, and you say, Roma con funghi. Is that useful? Is that, for some reason or other, you're looking puzzled and hysterical. Yes, that's right. Does anyone know what it signifies? Well, not what it signifies, one thing I was to say. What, what the word for it is in, in Czech. It's, it's a roll mop. And some of you don't know what a roll mop is. Um, I don't know where immediately where to send you, but uh, if you roll up a pickled herring with onions inside it, stick a two little wooden things through it, uh, this may sound to you either they're just they're one of the most delightful things that could ever happen to you, or in the case of my children, one of the most revolting things they've ever seen their father do, but you then eat it. Yeah, you roll up a pickled herring with onions inside it. That, in English, is called a roll mop. I not, don't speak, I'm not fluent in Czech at all. Um, no, I don't know any words in Czech. But that sign is the roll mop. Anyway, there you go. So we've got the dog, the elephant, the snail, and the roll mop. There you go.
We now know across languages what that sign is. Okay, I think I was going to stop there. Yes. All right, she's looking. When is he going to stop? No, no, no. Okay, never. I will stop there, and uh, I'm quite happy to receive questions from uh, from you, Jennifer, or from anybody else, indeed. So uh, yes. I'll move that out of the way. Thank you. And thank see you where so we get to. Thank yeah, you thank so you. much. making this very transparent code, um, bringing it, making it much more solid and visible for us again. Um, I have got, I've got questions, but um, it's not about me. Um, we have got plenty of time for questions. We've got a good half an hour. Um, there are, okay, I can see questions already. There are roving mics. So could I ask, um, uh, when, you, when, when I nominate you, if you could wait for the microphone to arrive and give us your name. And if it's appropriate, your affiliation, if it's appropriate. So we have... Um, Married? Three children? Yes, yes. <laughs> Age? No, no. OK, we've got a question at the front. Hello, my name is Gail. I can't say what my affiliation is. Nope. In what sense. Anyway, if, it, if these alphabets came um, into being from all sorts of places in all different ways, how is it then that... You know, in Hebrew it would be um, alphabet, in English it would be A, B, in Greek it would be alphabet. Why did they start the same? Indeed. Um, I'm just at this very moment reading uh, a book about how it would seem as if humanity started out with a small group of people who were probably speaking the same way, and I believe they say there are 6,000 extant languages. So orally speaking, we are very diverse we also build things in lots of different ways. Uh, we have very many different belief systems and kinship systems. Um, you know, in some cultures, your mother's brothers are very, very important. In other cultures, it's that irritating bloke who doesn't turn up with presents. Um, so, you know, we have many different cultural ways of going on, um, and it does seem as if we always have done so, there's, in a sense, I put it around the other way. There's no reason to think we wouldn't have uniformity. No, start again. There's no reason to think we would have uniformity with our writing systems because we don't have uniformity with everything else. In anything else, I mean, just take any religion you like and you'll find that there's at least ten branches of it and at many times in history, the different branches of that religion have gone to war with each other, uh, partly because they're, de they're debating whether you should or shouldn't have... Uh, statues or not, let's say. Um, so all you can say is that peoples, as they've developed, have found ways of representing the way they speak in different ways, and they've been okay about it. Right. Oh, yeah. Why did they start with A, B? Well, again, we have no idea. I mean, I have asked various people why we have the sequence of letters I mean, obviously, um, if you add on some, then you'll chuck some on the end, which has sometimes happened, particularly with the Greeks and the Romans from memory. They added on the... The, the Romans put the Z on the end because they acquired that from the Greeks. I mean, they added it on in order to signify that some words had Greek origin, and the same with the Y. That's why they put the Y and the Z there on the end. 
the Romans did that. And obviously the J appears next to the I because people thought it, was, it grew out of the I. In fact, I think in ancient Spanish manuscripts, the lowercase, if they wanted to write three in lowercase letters, they wrote I, I, J to indicate that was the end. And so they borrowed that out of the lowercase, literally, of letters and said, let's make that. At least that's one theory. All right. But as for the order of it and why it came about and why you would begin with an ox and why you would make the next word to mean house, the B meant originally house, and the C was um, a gimel, which was uh, as an ox goad. In other words, a stick, basically, but with a point on the end. Um, so why you would go from ox to house to the thing that you make the ox go with, um, nobody really knows. In fact, I got an anguish phone call from Simon Mayo on Radio 2. Someone had said, why Z the last letter in the alphabet? And so they rang me up, and I had to rush to my book to find out why Z. And, I mean, basically, nobody really knows. And indeed, an enormous amount of language, because it is invented at the grassroots, you're inventing language. You know, it's very hard to, to fully understand this. You know, we look at clocks, at analog clocks, and we know they move, but we can't see them moving. You know, you can look at a cloud in the sky when it's not windy and it doesn't really move, but then you look away and you look back and it has moved and changed shape. And language is like that. You know, I know in my lifetime there are words that I used to say that I don't say anymore. There are even constructions. So just the obvious one that all of you will know in the room who come from London is that when I was a boy, if you wanted to put the negative thing, the negative noise on the end of a sentence, all right, it sort of conjugated. So you'd say, he's big, isn't he? In other words, he's big, isn't he? Or you'd say, I'm big, innoy. Right? That's how in London people spoke. And you all know in this room, I think, that that no longer prevails. What you say, he's big, in it, Or I'm big, in it, Or you just say, in it. <laughs> Or even sometimes, I've heard my son say, is it? Which I haven't quite got. But anyway, in it and is it and all that, well, that, well, let's forget whatever you think about it, but grammatically something changed. In fact, in it corresponds to, French speakers here will know, to n'est-ce pas. It's almost a direct translation. The weird thing about n'est-ce pas is, you know, je suis grand, n'est-ce pas. It doesn't conjugate with the je. Yes, it's I am big, is it not? With the no before it. Yeah, isn't it? So it's, yes. So that's how you say it. So it doesn't, it's not I am big, am I not? Yes? And that's what the in it particle's done. Some people think it's come from Caribbean, some people think it's come from Irish speech, maybe it's a combination of both. But if you say why, all we can say is that in the melting pot to start off with of London, where you have, obviously, many diversity of all kinds, and then Irish people come, but Irish people have been coming here for as long as the two islands have been next to each other, so there's nothing new in that, speaking Irish and also then English, and then English-Irish, Anglo-Irish, and all that. So that's had an enormous effect on the way people speak in these islands, the kind of mixture between the Celtic and the English. But also Caribbean peoples have been coming here for at least 500 years, uh, one way or another, sometimes as not as free people and then as free and so on. 
and then obviously in the waves after Windrush coming and many of the Caribbean features had to appear in London and certainly London and Birmingham speech have started to appear and in fact I've sat on a bus and shut my eyes and thought I wonder you know what are the cultural origins of the people behind me if is that going to be visible to me in any way at all and I listen to two guys talking and I'd say well my money is that those two guys talking are of Caribbean origin just as I get off the bus I'll pretend I'm not looking at them so I get up I look down and they were clearly of uh, either of Chinese, Japanese or Korean origin. So that's how good I am at spotting. But it tells me something also is that these ways of speaking, they have no boundaries. We affect each other, and whether that's through migration, colonization, war, or evolution, it's, it's clear that even isolated peoples who aren't doing any of those things, their language evolves as well. I mean, one of the rules of language change is that if you have a stress language like Italian or English and dialects in French, but not French, uh, standard French, that if you have the stress bit of a word, the unstressed bit of a word tends to get garbled until it's lost. So when the peoples in France were speaking Latin, as we call it, they said femina. Femina, for woman. Femina, 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 fem. And they ended up with thumb. Yes, meaning a woman or a wife. Yes, they lost the, they lost, it's a stupid way of putting it, but basically what happened was the stress won out. The inner bit got wasted. Yeah, that, that happened. It's still in Italian. Yes, femina, is that, what does it mean? Femina. It still means woman. Yeah, that's right. So, Con fungi. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's a long way to say no one knows. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. An- another question, please. Maybe this oh, one could uh, end up with I don't know as well. There's yeah. a gentleman up there um, towards the back. Uh, Nico McDonald, I've uh, studied at LSE back in the day. Um, perhaps Nigel Farage should listen to your lecture next time he goes on a train and will pay more attention to the languages he hears. Um, from my typographic knowledge, um, the uppercase, big letters, uh, came from Rome and the Trajan's column, which you alluded to. I had understood that the lowercase letters were brought in from Celtic languages rather than being perhaps a sort of corruption of runic languages. Have you come across that theory? Um, well, there, there are several routes to the lowercase letters, and one of them is what they call um, insular or Irish. Yes, that's the source of some of the letters. If you want to draw an A, you know that you have a choice. Probably when you're writing... This is, one again, one of the mysterious things about... When you're writing, you probably write an A something like that. But you'll know, and I'm not very good at drawing, that typographically there's another A that looks a bit like that. This one, they think, came by and large probably from what they call insular, yes? And the same goes for the G, and of course that other one that you see in printing that looks something like that, though that's a tadpole. <laughs> And believe it or not, this is called a single story, and that's called a 
Double story. That's right. So that's the story. No, never mind. Okay. Now, that's all right for some of them, and there may be experts in the room who will be able to tell us exactly the roots, but by and large the domination and the standardisation of it comes from Charlemagne. So Charlemagne, um, our French people tell us, those French people say Charlemagne, it's German. Um, so uh, Charlemagne was the, I think he was the Holy Roman Emperor, which means that uh, probably he wasn't an emperor, he wasn't Roman and he wasn't holy. Um, <laughs> he was hanging around about 800. There's no certain evidence that he himself could write. I think he was too busy being a warrior. Um, but his scribes developed the first standardised lowercase writing around 800 and then by the time the the Norman scribes come to this country by 1066 the lower case they're using care of Charlemagne scribes so it has the name it's called Carolingian that's the Latin comes out of the Latin for Charlemagne minuscule that's to say the lower case so Carolingian minuscule is the lower case with some insular variations and insular influence. So that's... Oh, I had an answer that time, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you agree with that, Jennifer? Did I say anything wrong there? As far as I'm concerned, no. No, All good. Right. Just checking. So anyway, so uh, Charlemagne scribes are mostly who to thank or blame, as the case may be, for the lowercase. Thank you. We have a question at the... Um, it's a lady about, there, green. Oh, she, she had a hand oh, up before. Oh, sorry. So yeah, the lady, yeah. The one who speaks American. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Angela. I'm an um, LSE student in psychology and Canadian. So. <laughs> Canadian, American, that's all right. Uh, it's American, North well, American. Um, I'm fairly ignorant on my question. I've just been curious for a long time. So why in the American language, and it seems like American language only is a Z called a Z? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it seems as if, in your period, people interchanged between Z and Z. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what people seem to think, that in Elizabethan times, so we're thinking Shakespeare's times, uh, where, of course, there, there was an enormous variation in ways of writing, ways of speaking, um, that Z and Z was interchangeable. But it's also possible that people didn't only say Z, they may have said Ized and Izard. And maybe even the name Izard came from that pronunciation of the letter Z. But there's, you know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to piece it together because the manuscripts, people tend not to necessarily write a lot about how they're speaking and writing. So it's a bit hard to find. Now, um, remember that America, the founding of America, was in the 17th, founding of white America, colonised America, was of the 17th century. Yeah. So the first speaking in the Americas was akin to the way people were speaking in England. The migrants were quite often from the west side of England, from Devon and so on, and this is one of the origins of American speech, North American speech. Another powerful influence on North American speech is Irish and Irish pronunciations. And in fact, in rare recordings of the late 19th century of people from the West Country in England, they sound like an extraordinary mixture between what West Country sounds like now and Irish and American. So the origins of the speech, American speech. But in American, in certain cases, you don't say, I have got, you say, I've gotten, which is the old English way of saying it. What's quite interesting is London kids are now saying gotten. 
So it's coming back. So the way Shakespeare spoke is coming back thanks to America. Now, the Z was formalised as being the Z by the father of all formalisation in American writing, whose name is Webster. Noah Webster was a pioneer in many senses of the word. He believed that he was a founding father of a new civilization. So if you go back to the Bill of Rights and this moment in American history, people were full of indignation and pride. They were throwing off the old order. They were creating a new civilization. And part of that, one small part of it, certainly in the mouth of this chap Noah Webster, and I've written about him in the book, is that he thought that therefore American had to be distinct from British English. And so he created a spelling bee, and then he created the famous Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. And in those documents, those first documents at the beginning of the 19th century, he laid down some of the spellings that are different from British spellings, um, some that haven't survived in America, but also that he said it's a Z. So... That's, it, it does have that, but you can say it's Webster, but that's only half the story. The point is that as a way of saying it, it pre-existed Webster. And Canadians say Z because, yeah, that's right, because you love the Queen. <laughs> Not you personally, that was a sort of very generic and irresponsible way of talking. Okay, so we, we've got a, a question here, yeah. Uh, my name's David. Uh, if I received a text message from Michael, um, I wondered what kind of liberties he might have taken with uh, the English language. It's a great question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your name? David. David. Well, you'd probably become Dave, whether you <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> so it would go Dave. Goons. That's Arsenal. G O O N Z Winning W I N I N. I wouldn't bother with the G. There'd be no full stops, no commas. So it says Dave. I've given you a capital letter, rather extraordinary. I don't usually bother with that. So it says Dave Goons Winning. I don't know whether they are. If anybody could look at their phone for me, I'd be very grateful to know. But that sort of thing, I. When I'm writing with my family and to friends, I I sometimes go formal with strangers, but as far as my family and friends are concerned, I will reduce. And I've also started playing the most absurd, crazy game with my missus, which is that as I'm coming home, when I find places, I see what would happen if you broke the syllables up in a different way. So I go past Hornsey Health Centre. So I write Horn, C, Elf, Cent. Her. <laughs> so you can call it liberties or you can call it having fun. I don't know, but uh, it's, the Victorians did a lot of that. Uh, they did rebuses. So, you know, they would do things, there were children's puzzles where they might say uh, the apple, you know, Adam ate an apple, and then. Uh, they would do various ways of representing the letters. So it might be a picture, apple, or they might say et, 
and break that down in some kind of a way using so on. So um, there's a lot of that in Victorian times. It's quite funny. I look at a lot of this text language and realise that the kind of Victorians got there before us. People like Lewis Carroll, actually. Um, they did things like... Uh, this will be familiar to you, some of you. Which says... Too wise you be, too wise you are, and then you would write, <laughs> I see you are too wise for me. Or, You are too good to me to be 2 plus 2 plus 2 makes 4 for God 10. You are too good to me to be forgotten. Says NAC, 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 NAC. That says seven up catch. Can up seven up catch. I have many of these in the book. And also, a special section at the back for you to play, play alphabetic games. Uh, some of you who are French in origin will know of Ulipu. Uh, this was a group of people who did investigated language and its representation, and you have the Ulipu Olympics to try at the end of the... In other words, coming up with uh, the shortest possible sentence that uses all the letters of the alphabet only once. Um, and that sort of a thing. So, yes. So that's seven up cans. Yeah. We've got a, a question right at the far back. Are there any other, more questions? Because we're coming towards... So we've got one here. So one at the back, and then the, a lot, it might be the last question, or your, the person sitting next to you. Hi, I just wondered whether you could uh, throw any light on the origins of received pronunciation. Is there a, a sort of alphabetical code that, uh, and... Uh, history behind that yeah uh, just so everyone knows what we're talking about there's something called standard English and there's something called received pronunciation or RP as it sometimes gets called so these are two different things standard English is whatever is the accepted code of formal writing which for better for a want of a better argument you could say the language used in broadsheet newspapers um, or in any kind of formal interaction, legal or otherwise, and that's standard English. Now, just very briefly on that, it's people exaggerate the extent to which it's, there's only one way to do those things. You only have to go back to dear old Fowler writing in the 1930s 
who, which was called uh, English, Common English Usage, and he will talk quite happily about the many variations there are within it. It isn't just one set of rules or instructions. So that's standard English, and really we should be saying standard English is because it's different in American, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, African language, and so on. All over the world, standard English is interpreted differently in those different countries, and it's even interpreted and changes very rapidly. So things that would be thought of as absolutely impossible when I was at school um, and wrong, you'll find quite happily in The Guardian, The Telegraph and The Times, um, quite happily, I mean, including, you know, obscenities and all sorts of things, uh, which, you know, you weren't even allowed to see when I was a kid. Uh, but the idea that should appear in a national newspaper, you know, is outrageous and obviously we're all suffering as a consequence. <laughs> Receive pronunciation. The point about that is that it's one way of speaking and it was, as far as I know, it was developed as a notion sometime in the 1930s and it refers to what is either known as southern educated or just simply educated speech. But there's a lot of problems with it because obviously there's people all over just the British Isles who speak, if you like, of fully educated, let's just take somebody like Seamus Heaney, all right? Seamus Heaney's speech is nothing like my speech, but he doesn't speak, didn't speak, RP. He came from uh, Northern Ireland um, and spent a lot of his time in, uh, in, the, in Southern Ireland, in the Irish Republic, um, and in America. But his speech, you know, he's not short of education, old Seamus. You know, he did all right. You know, he went to college and uh, he wrote quite well. Um, LAUGHTER so there's nothing defective or not... So there's nothing wrong or any way you want to put it. Or you could take all the people sitting in the, uh, the Scottish Assembly. They're, they're not speaking anything like the way I do, and they're all communicating very happily and in a very educated way. So we ha we, the term is really quite inadequate because it's, it is a form of educated speech... But if, it's, if all we're talking about is southern educated speech, well, it's really, I mean, it's very insignificant. It's not, it's not really of any significance. Why is it called received? I'm not quite sure why they called it received. I think at one point it was the idea that it was Oxbridge speech. But actually the so-called upper classes, the aristocrats, do all sorts of things with their speech that's not like, as you, if you might call it, ordinary educated speech. There's all sorts of things. I mean, the most famous being that um, hunting, shooting and fishing, which was thought to be, and there's still some aristocrats you sometimes see on TV, I tend not to meet them every day, um, <laughs> who still stay hunting, shooting and fishing. Well, that's thought to be a kind of cockney error. But very posh people say that. Um, and also even upper-class speech, if that's what you want to call it, changes. We did a programme on word of mouth, which uh, took all the Queen's Christmas broadcasts from her very first to her most recent. And a phonologist, no, not a phonologist, it was a phonetician, uh, he, he then analysed her speech from the first to the last, and many of her vowel sounds and consonants have changed in that time. So even if you said, oh, well, we ought to be talking the Queen's English, whatever that means... We ought to be talking like her. Well, she isn't talking the Queen's English. <laughs> so there's a lot of problems with it. Unless you build in flexibility, change, change across. Harry speaks differently from William. We put this up on word of mouth. He, for, the middle T of many of his words, he pronounces to what some ears sounds American. He says water. 
Yeah. Why does he pick like that? I don't know whether that's a kind of army thing. I don't know. But, you know, that's a, I'm only picking them out, not because I'm a royalist, as, as I told you before, but, but because, because their speech is preserved, we can hear it and, and, and map it, if you like. So he's saying water while his brother's saying water. So they've had more or less very similar backgrounds, but they're pronouncing the two things. So if you say, well, you know, what is... Oh, well, let's at least try and talk like the royals. Well, they're not talking like each other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very conscious that we are coming up to time. I'm looking at the organisers at the back. Do I have time for one more question? One. Okay. Super quick. Super quick. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You were talking before about pictures and symbols having meaning. I was wondering about punctuation. I'm very interested in question marks, exclamation marks. Well, yeah, well, indeed, punctuation is fascinating. Obviously, this is Jennifer's period because... If you, if you go, if you go to, I will just say, if you look at Beowulf manuscript, there isn't what we would call punctuation in it. If you look at the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, in, in, it's still in the British Museum, I think, not British Library, but anyway, there's some argument about that. Um, and we only got it because Stalin was short of gold, but anyway, I won't go there. But anyway, so the Codex Sinaiticus, the Bible, these texts have nothing that we would call punctuation. Then occasionally these sort of strange... Halfway up the letter, dots appear. You also start seeing some capital letters to indicate the first bit of a verse, what we would call a verse in the Bible. And then if you look at the first folio, so at Shakespeare, first time it's the whole lot's collected together, very nearly, 1623, uh, Shakespeare's first folio, British Library, have a look at it. There's quite a lot of punctuation in it, but not as much as we put in. Um, and basically, punctuation was invented by typographers. It was not invented by clever grammarians. It was not invented by teachers. It wasn't invented by professors. Uh, it was invented by the typographers in order to make things clear. So they're literally doing it in lead. They're inventing little signs and borrowing them. Um, and, of course, the, the great experimenters and inventors of typography don't come from this country. They come from Italy and from Germany Gutenberg and the great Venetians, Venetians that is, and they start inventing these little dots and signs and there's no regularity across Europe. I mean, we've got people here, you can open a French book and you'll see speeches indicated by a dash. They aren't these things. They've got those things if they want to use them, but they'll do it with one of them, which I think we call a tiré. The guillemet is these, but then, but in some French, like in Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, speech is indicated with a tiré, with a, with a hyphen. Yeah, or the dash, right? And then in Spanish, you know, you have question marks up, what I would call upside down. Sorry about that. That's, that's <laughs> Anglo-centric prejudice. I'm sorry about that. Um, and so on. So the point is, but these are typographers who do it. The inky-handed sa- sons of toil do it. Very ordinary artisans. So when people start getting a bit hoity-toity about punctuation, I always say, well, remember, the people who did it, they're guys, they were covered in ink, and were probably dying of lead poisoning, oh. all right? And they were sitting there and arguing with each other, and they did it. And these beautiful, beautiful manuscripts, and it's, uh, not manuscripts, well, they are the kind, but the first sort of, if you see, there's a wonderful book of the, the first great books of the world. It's, I think it's called The Book of the Book, which I bought partly to do this book. And they're stunning looking. And you remember that these guys are people, they've probably got very little education, very little and they are creating, they're craftspeople, they're like furniture makers and so on, and they created the punctuation system, which of itself is in fact much more flexible than we ever allow for. 
It is, in fact, very, very flexible. Have a look when you go back at the first page of Bleak House. The second or third paragraph begins, fog everywhere, full stop. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the most beautiful, wonderful pieces in English literature, and you won't recognise the punctuation. It's basically Dickens decided that's how he would punctuate. You've got E.E. E. Cummings who decided he would invent his own punctuation. You've got Bernard Shaw, he invented his own punctuation. He thought apostrophes, waste of time. Um, I kind of agree. Um, <laughs> the last name was Bernard Shaw. <coughs> oh, sorry, Ulysses. Yes, sorry, yes, indeed. No, Ulysses and, of course, Finnegan's Wake, indeed. Um, many writers, and indeed, you just look at advertising. When you go back through the tube... it's a punctuation-free zone or a punctuation-inventing zone. And that's how we live. We live with this. I mean, you know, I've made a slideshow of advertising in the London Underground. Boris's own signs are without full stops. I'm I'm so sorry. for the microphone but before you go um, it's been absolutely wonderful and it's such a fantastic conversation it's been the questions have been wonderful too and thank you very much I, this has been a great audience before you head off let me tell you that um, you can carry on this conversation if you want I know that Michael is there's some books being sold outside and I think he's happy to sign some of them as well or Michael Rose so, R-O-S so thank you very much and as he's going out one more time